This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Let me move on to uh, another question. In, in light of that, in light of the way our culture is perceived, and then to multiply that by a Christian orientation in a non-Christian, you know, dominated culture, which is a rapidly changing environment for us within our own country here in the U.S., how, why is tone so important? Uh, why have we lost the voice in the public square? And what can we do to uh, be salt and light? Obviously, our desire to engage the culture has multiple motives, not the least of which is to influence it for righteousness, obviously, and for Christ. But what are the hurdles that we need to think about that keep us from effectively doing that? Uh, Daryl, let me start with you, and then Jeff, if you would chime in, and then Jenny, maybe in that order, so you can have your thoughts prepared as we walk around the table. But uh, why, why is the, the a t- tone and approach so critical? Well, I think the New Testament's actually pretty clear from the beginning that if you stand up for God and represent Him, there is going to be rejection. So I think the expectation of, if I can say this, popularity uh, is not something that the New Testament uh, tells us to expect. Um, uh, the, it, it, is, um, it is a, 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 a – again, another tension in the Christian life that we reach out to the world, we stretch out a hand to the world, we say God cares you and loves for you, and yet there is a rejection that often comes with that. That Jesus said, you know, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. So. But you don't reach out and you don't evaluate what you do on the basis of whether what you do is popular or not or even how much power you possess. Your assessment of the quality of your engagement, if I can say it that way, is rooted in being faithful to the living God and in representing him in a way that is that is that it that at least attempts to be honoring to him and to have an integrity about it in the way in which he is represented by the way you interact and live. So that means that your tone has this other tension that's built into it in the face of the possibility of rejection, which you understand is going to likely come with the territory. And that is you're extending a hand of love on the one hand, but you also understand that that's going to be and sometimes require a challenge of the person that you're extending the hand to. Because the person who is not a part of the Christian background, who is living uh, independently of God in one way or another, or sees spirituality in very individualized kinds of ways, uh, may or may not be um, open to to the need, uh, but simply to to be submissive to God and to His revelation, and so. Uh, that introduces a, a, a tension in the walk, but the tone is always one of um, of 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 engagement and challenge simultaneously. I like that 
Acts 17 passage. And the reason I like the Acts 17 passage is, is that on the one hand, you see Paul extending a hand to a culture that he has been provoked by. I mean, before he even speaks, the text tells us he saw the idols and he was provoked. And yet when he addresses them, the sense is that he's saying, I sense you are a people grappling to come to grips with uh, the unknown God. Of all the myriad of ways he could have entered into his challenge, <laughs> that is not the one I would have thought of. And, uh, and then he engages them, and then he slowly draws them into the rebuke that is built into the speech. But in the midst of the rebuke, he's also beginning to extend the hand. He never gets through the speech, but he begins to extend the hand about the hope of resurrection. And so you see him with fighting this tension, fighting with this tension, better way to say it, or engaging with this tension of a hand extended on the one hand, but there is a challenge that's wrapped up in it. And, and you watch him wrestle with the skill and the tone of it is engaging. I don't know what other word to say. He's, he's trying to draw them in to have them uh, consider what it is that he's putting on the table. It's a very different tone, interestingly enough, from Romans 1 when he talks about the culture. There, it's very direct. It's, it's hard-hitting. In fact, it, it's so hard-hitting that when people read it, particularly people who don't identify with the Christian culture, they, they think, you know, Paul is just rude, ha- rude hateful, <laughs> whatever word you want to put. Um, that's a very honest confrontation of what the culture is. And yet when he engages, that's not how he engages. And so I think that that gives us a, a spectrum of what we're dealing with here. The, uh, someone who is sensitive to, to, the, to the tension between the challenge that is inherent in the Christian faith in terms of where most people are in their walk with God if they don't know him. All people are in their walk with God if they don't know him. And, and the and – the, uh, and the, the invitation that you're trying to extend that says to the person, God really desires the best for you, and the best for you is to get reconnected to him. I think tone has, uh, in culture, historical precedence. And so American evangelicals are a culture unto themselves, and they can't be disconnected, nor can their tone be disconnected from their history. So in, uh, in the 19th century, with the, with the dawn of the scientific revolution, American evangelicals went through a very painful period in this country, whereas before the scientific revolution, they were largely respected. Uh, the larger American culture at least uh, endured, if not invited, their particular theological perspectives. But with the rise of the scientific revolution, the larger culture departs from the supernaturalism of the American evangelical. And as the American evangelical sees the larger culture depart and, uh, in fact, uh, reject the American evangelical, the American evangelical uh, becomes hurt. The American evangelical feels rejected, unloved. Uh, they f- they experience a fall from a premier seat in the American culture to now one of disdain in the larger culture. And so they decide uh, in the, uh, the 19th century to retreat out of the larger culture into fortresses and into cities and into worlds and into cultures of their own making where they can feel a part of the majority 
again, where they can control uh, the, uh, the items and details of their culture. That changed the tone of American evangelicalism in its engagement with culture. It became desperate. Uh, it, uh, it became the tone of a person who sees that an investment in a stock is quickly dropping as the price of the stock drops. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he is on his phone to his broker, and his tone is completely different than the tone the day that he bought the stock. Get me out now. <laughs> And uh, so the tone of the American evangelical changed. The tone of the American evangelical in relationship to culture changed again after World War II, when American evangelicals known as the neo-evangelicals or the new evangelicals attempted to re-enter culture uh, and uh, began to imitate culture, began to welcome aspects of culture uh, into their lives. And the tone changed uh, again. It was more uh, civil. It was less desperate, but it was also more accommodating. And so uh, American evangelicalism has gone from, uh, uh, from different ends of the spectrum to a desperate tone uh, to in sometimes a more civil, but to even in more in some cases uh, to an accommodating, less critical tone. Um, and so tone is, uh, is historically uh, impacted and historically determined. Um, and so, yes, tone is extremely important. Uh, I might disagree with Daryl just a tiny bit here. I, I would see actually what's happening in Romans 1 as engagement. And I would see, uh, I would see that sometimes the tone of engagement has to be different. Uh, I, I would also see the tone in Acts 17 as, uh, as sensitive, uh, as, as a desire to, to enter and to dialogue, but also a tone which in the end up, ends up being absolutely absolutist mm -hmm. and which disregards the original intent of the idol maker. The idol maker of the unknown god had just positioned this idol as one among many gods. Uh, Paul doesn't even allow for that interpretation. He immediately removes uh, the identity of the unknown god from the pantheon and immediately declares this is the only god who exists and he has a son, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. So that I think Christian tone can have a variety of tones to it. It can be harsh. It can be loud. Uh, it can be soft. It can be gentle. Uh, it can be condemning on the basis of the divine revelation. It can be welcoming on the basis of the divine revelation. And so I think the trick is uh, to, uh, to call upon the Spirit of God uh, to whom Jesus, uh, about whom Jesus made the promise that at times of testing and at times of trial, uh, he would teach them what to say. I think there is a way in which we need to return to that gospel promise that was given specifically to the disciples and ask that in relationship to us, the Lord be merciful enough to return that to us so that the Spirit would give us, as he gave the early disciples, 
the right tone at the right place. And I believe that tone can be diverse as we find the tone of Jesus, the tone of the prophets, the tone of the lawgivers to change uh, with different circumstances. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So the point that you're making, Jeff, just to underline, because I think it's an important point, is in the midst of the process of engagement, you, your own tone, even though you're the same person in one sense, may, may shift. I agree with you about Acts 17. Acts 17 is an entirely, if I can say it, subversive speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, goal, his goal is to take them where they are, and by the time you get to the end, bring them to a place where they certainly are not. Absolutely. And in the midst of doing that, um, he does all kinds of things. He identifies with their cultural artifacts to start off with, but then he turns he uses their own poets in the midst of making his point. But then he but then he turns that in direction, I think in a way to get them to think, or at least the attempt is I think to get them to think about the way they have viewed certain things in a completely fresh and new way that undercuts the way they thought about it before. At least that's where he's trying to go. And uh, and and so I think that the that that's one style. It's the same person. Paul's the same person in Romans one that he is in Acts seventeen, right. and so uh, I think that one of the one of the difficulties that we have in talking about tone is we think well we should always be this. Well, in fact, that's not. You don't see that in Scripture anywhere, and you don't um, especially don't see it with Jesus. Exactly right. right. You see him. He can be harsh. He can be sensitive. Yeah. What's interesting about Jesus is sometimes he's harsh with the people. You might not expect him to be harsh with at one level, and he's soft with the people who you might have expected him to be harsh with. So there's a little bit of that going on too. Uh, but it is it is the same person reacting in different ways because the the issue in one sense isn't the tone; the issue is the goal of where you're trying to go in engaging. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and you're always trying to go in a direction that redirects per- people to to reconnect with the living God in a way that's faithful to what he desires as best for 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 his creation and for him and for uh, the people that he has created. What, what we don't want to happen is as American evangelicals to allow our history to determine our tone. Mm-hmm. We don't want our experience, we don't want the, the wars of our fathers, of our American evangelical fathers in the 19th century to determine the volume or the tactics that we use in the 21st century. We have to be American evangelicals in the 21st century 
that are looking to the Lord Jesus and to his prophets and apostles for our tone, not to the wars of our forefathers. I think it's a great example. And Jenny, I'm going to come back to you. The, the Acts 17 is fascinating because you've got two groups of philosophers represented there. You've got uh, Epicureans on the one side. You've got Stoics on the other side. Both of those have mutually exclusive philosophies. And I was thinking about that the other day. You have uh, in the life of Christ, it's called Welcome to the First Century, <laughs> you have the Herodians who were pro-Roman, uh, pro-Herod, not just pro-Roman, but pro-Herod, and followers of uh, a Roman-appointed ruler who, uh, whose, whose family history, especially whose father, <laughs> uh, was a notorious megalomaniac uh, and power monger. And you have Pharisees on the other end who are so pro-Israeli and pro-law, and those are mutually exclusive, but they become common bedfellows in contradicting Christ. Uh, Paul rightly addresses both of the extremes in that message in Acts 17 and steers uh, that message, as you said, from some common ground to some very uncommon ground where he ends up, not only is there the goal of uh, that all men everywhere should repent, but he's fixed a day when he's going to appoint, you know, his son to, as the judge to come and judge. Mm -hmm. there, there, there is salvation and judgment that are uncompromised realities mm -hmm. that are on the table for option. I think it's ironic in our own culture, uh, in the U.S. and even beyond, that you have pluralism uh, and you have very I hate to use the word evangelical atheism, but very, uh, you know, activist atheism, those are mutually exclusive, but both are tolerated, tolerated within our culture. Uh, Christianity, which obviously we believe has the answer, is not tolerated in our culture. So we're sitting here in between the vice grip that has some good New Testament, you know, teaching for us of how to articulate our faith in the midst of that. And I, I, Jenny, then we come back to you with that. What I think is part of our challenge in America that our foreign students help us understand is that Christianity in many other countries has never been a majority view. It's never been a majority cultural expression. Even we would admit that true Christianity has probably not ever been our majority cultural expression either. But the perception is that we've been a quote-unquote Christian country. They've come out of a minority situation. We're going into a more minority situation. Uh, those students have a lot to share with us of how do you live the Christian faith in a contrary cultural environment. And following up with Dr. Bingham, um, it was excellent that he pointed us back to to beg Christ on how we should be engaging and with our tone and, and our words. So I, I would um, mention James here that for I can only speak as an American, so I'm speaking to the Americans in the audience, that we better be very careful that before we're speaking, we have looked at ourselves and confessed in, in long self-introspection with the community of faith around us before we open our mouth. And I think we might be led by Christ in that. So the, the burden I have for my American peers is sometimes we're not, we're not quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We're 
antagonistic without having asked Christ to give us the tone and words to speak that he would have us use. And that comes up, as you say, with with, uh, students. Um, Some of the marginalization that Christians may experience in this country is not even our message as much as our delivery, Hmm. our methodology, our tone in a... I don't mean that we can't use a harsh tone at times um, if it's appropriate, but I find that sometimes we may rush to speak without having done the due diligence that Dr. Bingham was mentioning. So it strikes my students as strange who are used to living in a minority atmosphere to see Americans disgruntled that they don't have the cultural majority position any longer. I mean, Christianity has always been a minority. Even Judaism has been a largely historical minority. So part of what the challenge I think is for Americans is to contemplate what it might be like if the culture changes as it has and is and will to how would I respond as a minority in this situation, not necessarily the majority power perceived culturally last in the past. So in relating tone to culture and bringing in the international perspectives is that confrontation isn't always verbal. And especially in Dallas or wherever we're living in the United States, different cultures are going to hear and and respond to conflict differently, not just words, not just verbally. So we might think creatively and if we have um, neighbors who are immigrants from a different country, how best would they respond and hear the truth of Christ that might not just be verbal? Join us next week for part three of The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.